This morning, we continue our study in 1 Corinthians, and I'll have you take your Bibles and turn to chapter 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, 13 verses that we will examine this morning. They all go together. Let me give you a little background here to make sure you understand what's going on. It's always important to have the context, and uh, what we see here is that the Apostle Paul is continuing to answer questions that the saints in Corinth have been asking pertaining to practical issues of Christian living. And here in chapter 8, he is beginning uh, a section that will go on, frankly, for several chapters that addresses the issue of Christian liberty. And as you recall, the people in Corinth were a very factious people. They were prone to sectarian fighting. One group would be against another group regarding political issues and their favorite philosopher, and it got brought into the church. They had their favorite preachers and teachers. They had different uh, ideas about sexual morality, and they were even suing each other over petty things. Some of them had one view about celibacy, and another had another view, and on and on and went. Circumcision versus uncircumcision. It was just, it's almost like a never-ending litany of issues they're dealing with. And now, they're dealing with a big issue in the church, and that had to do with things sacrificed to idols. Now, as strange as that may seem to us, because I doubt if any of you have had a problem eating meat sacrificed to idols this last week, right? Seems pretty foreign to us. But it was a huge issue for them. And as you will see, the Apostle Paul is going to deal with a bigger issue, and that is this idea of how do we conduct ourselves in the exercise of Christian liberty. Now, before we look at the text, let me give you a little historical background. The Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic. In other words, they worshipped lots of different gods and goddesses. There were essentially 28 gods and goddesses that, that were primary to them, and each one had different powers, each one had different spheres of influence, and people believed that these gods and goddesses could help them with various issues in their life. They had both Greek and Roman names. Let me give you an example. The Greeks had the god Zeus, and the Romans called him Jupiter, and he was the king of the gods. The Greeks had Heracles, the Romans called him Hercules, and he was the son of Zeus. And, of course, we've seen him on television, right? And then the Greeks had uh, Poseidon. The The Roman name was Neptune. That was the god of the sea. And then they had Aphrodite. The Roman name was Venus. She was the goddess of love, and on and on it went. And each of these gods and goddesses derived their names from mortal men and women who had done impressive things and they had been um, uh, really exalted and achieved an exalted rank of deity. And frankly, all of that was a precursor of the Roman Catholic veneration of saints. Now, these people were also polydemonistic, all right? So they had numerous demons, evil spirits that they believe hovered in the air and could enter humans by attaching themselves to meat, 
big deal here. And so, therefore, you have to decontaminate meat. You had to cook it well. There was no sushi in Corinth, all right? You know, no uncooked meat. Forget about salmonella poisoning. They worried about little demons sneaking on their burger. You know, it's that kind of thinking that they had. So you had to cook the meat and you would offer it to whichever god you were worshiping that day or that week. And this would not only make the god happy or the goddess happy, but it would also get rid of those little rascals that got on your meat. Now, we all laugh at this because we know that that is as ludicrous as Santa Claus and his little elves. I hope I didn't ruin anybody's Christmas there. But but the people actually believed these things, all right? And so what would happen is people would purchase their meat and then they would take it to their temples, to places where they could sacrifice the meat and give it to the idol. And the priest would divide the meat into three parts. He would take part of it and he would give it to the idol. And and that meat would literally be burned up. And then the second part, the priest would, would keep. And they had so much meat that they had extra, so they sold it in the markets. So if you went to Publix or Kroger in Corinth, all of the meat basically would be meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And they obviously made a little money on the side. And then, of course, the third part, you'd get to keep and after, after the sacrifice was made. So de-demonized meat, if I can use that phrase, de-demonized meat sacrificed to idols literally dominated the marketplace. All the meat was demon-free. They weren't worried about fat-free or gluten-free. It had to be demon-free. So that's the thinking. Now, this was a big problem for some of the Gentile believers who were saved out of all that pagan wickedness. Because everywhere you went, you had to eat meat that had been sacrificed to these idols. Whether it was a friend's house, you go to a wedding, you go to a company picnic, whatever it is, it's meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And some of them just couldn't do it. They felt like it was dishonoring to the Lord. They had all kinds of reasons, but it was hard for them to do that, and some of them just wouldn't do it. And then others, even Gentiles that had come to Christ, would say, oh, come on. I mean, don't worry about it. The whole demon getting on your meat thing, I mean, that's stupid. That whole thing's a hoax. And, and, and there, there are no gods. All of that's just a figment of your imagination. N- none of that even exists. So that's what's going on with with Gentile believers in the church. But then you also have the Jewish believers that have a real problem with this. I mean, the meat is not kosher. It's not made consistent with the Jewish law. Hasn't been processed properly. And worse yet, it has been sacrificed to a pagan idol. Now, as we say, that's going to go over like a pork chop at a bar mitzvah. I mean, they're just not having it. So you've got all of this going on in the church, in their culture. You've got two opposing camps. If I can make it real simple, you've got eat the meat versus refuse the meat. And to to, to kind of get the idea, it's like you've got the eat the meat over here, refuse the meat over here, and each side has their own T-shirts and hats and coffee mugs, the whole deal. And so they're kind of fighting amongst each other. And so they're going to the Apostle Paul and they're, they're saying, help us here. But as I say, Paul is going to deal with a bigger issue. He's going to address this, but he's going to deal with the bigger issue of how do you deal with fellow believers who believe things that God neither 
condemns nor commands. How do you deal with those gray areas of Christian living? How do you deal with those who have, as he's going to say in verse 7, a weak conscience? Or as he's going to tell us in Romans 14, they have weak faith. It's undeveloped faith, immature faith. Those whose conscience is is poorly formed. Those who hold to non-essentials of self-imposed restrictions on certain kinds of religious compulsions and restraints, often related to things in their past. Those that, that, that are just black and white on everything. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with those who just, frankly, cannot perceive their liberty in Christ? What are the limits of Christian freedom? What governs our Christian liberty in those gray areas of life? Those peripheral areas that all of a sudden become central and frankly end up dividing believers and splitting churches. How do you deal with those things? So folks, this is a huge issue. And as we will see, the danger is getting out of balance because you can get on one extreme, and you can become a legalist, and on the other extreme, you can have such license that you become a libertine. And both are equally abhorrent to the Lord and can cause great division in the church. And I might also add add that each of us can have tendencies towards one side or the other on various issues in our life, in our Christian living. So don't think that this just applied to them back in the first century. If you honestly look at yourself, as I have had to do even this week, I'll say, you know, on this issue, I'm a little more towards the legalism side. And on this issue, I'm a little, you know. So you you have to be sensitive to these things. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to deal with. So we're going to examine the Spirit's instruction through his inspired apostle under two very simple headings. We're going to see the problem defined and the principle applied. First of all, the problem defined. Notice verse 1 in chapter 8. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Let's stop here. This is a bit of a humorous statement as I think about it, because I'm sure both sides claimed that they had exclusivity on knowledge, on defending their position. And remember, they're big on knowledge. They're big on philosophia, man's wisdom that God mocks as foolishness in chapter 1. Both sides have their arguments. Both sides have their Bible verses. Both sides could could, uh, argue their point, their position, because after all, they were concerned about loving their brother and sister in Christ, right? After all, they were concerned about preferring one another in love, right? After all, they were concerned about pursuing the things that make for peace and the building up of one another, right? No, they were concerned about promoting their own agenda. And that seems to be the issue here. And so he goes on to say this, quote, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Or another translator says this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, please understand, Paul is not in any way condemning knowledge per se. He's condemning the misuse of it. 
You will recall in Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So, especially with the we eat the meat group, they had accurate knowledge, but they had arrogant hearts. They were strong in doctrine, but weak in love. And so Paul is basically going to want to tone them, them down. He, he wants to reprove them for the misuse of their Christian liberty. And frankly, in every church, and over the years as a pastor, I've seen it obviously in this church as well, in every church you're going to have weak believers, more immature believers, Believers that have consciences that, that haven't been fully informed, rightly informed. And so those that, that know better, the stronger, more mature believers, must learn to accommodate those people in love and in an effort to edify them, as we're going to see, in an effort to instruct them over time, but to allow the Spirit of God to work with them at his own pace. Verse 2, he says, if anyone supposes that he knows, and the term knows there carries the idea in the original language of knowing something experientially. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, none of you possess exhaustive, penetrating knowledge. So don't get too cocky here, especially when your knowledge is bereft of Christian love as he is going to say in verse 3. Folks, the truly wise man who possesses the knowledge of the Word of God knows full well that he doesn't know everything. He doesn't know everything that God has to say. He certainly doesn't know the heart of another individual. He does not know where the Spirit of God is in terms of, of that other person's level of maturity. It's the ignorant man who thinks he has all the answers and all the applications. In fact, the truly ignorant are too ignorant to know that they are ignorant. And they're too arrogant to admit it. Someone has divine, defined knowledge as, quote, the process of passing from the unconscious state of ignorance to the conscious state of ignorance, end quote. I like the way John MacArthur puts it, quote, ignorance does not know that it does not know, but true knowledge does not know and knows it. So Paul is going to tell them, look, folks, true knowledge will manifest itself in love for Christ and love for others, especially love for believers. And what we're going to see is that true knowledge will produce a character and conduct that is, that is tempered with compassion and tenderness and patience. Without this, your knowledge is just going to puff you up. It's just going to be arrogance. And it never builds another person up. And evidently, this is what was missing in the church. In verse 3, he says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Fascinating statement. Think about what Paul is saying here. In 2 Timothy 2 and verse 9, Paul says, The Lord knows those who are his. 
That, that, that there he's speaking of, of God's knowledge of, of being something that is far beyond just knowing you, an awareness of who you are or a familiarity with it, with you. But to know is the idea that we see, for example, in the Old Testament, where a, where a husband would know his wife, uh, emphasizing the, the intimate relationship that one has with his spouse. We read the same thing when Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And we know biblically that, that God set his love upon us and knew us before time began. 2 Timothy 1, 9. We know, according to Romans eight twenty nine, those he foreknew, literally foreloved, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And I think of Psalm 139, where the psalmist tells us that God saw our unformed substance before he even created us. And he says that, 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 that in his book, he wrote the number of our days. So he knows us intimately. He wrote those days, by the way, before any of them had happened yet. So that's the kind of knowledge that, he, that, that God has. And he says here in verse 3, again, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So, folks, this is, this is marvelous. There is this intimate love that a believer will be aware of, an intimate love that God has for him. And not only does, does he understand that God loves him, but he understands that God inhabits him and that he's coming again to take take us unto himself as his bridal church. And this is really the foundation of, of Paul's argument, the key to knowing how to live our life in these gray, gray areas. We must first love God. And when we do, we realize that he not only just knows us, aware of us, but he is intimately involved in our lives, experientially. And this is where it all begins. This will pr produce, therefore, a profound awareness of God's intimate knowledge of us and his love for us. This is just incomprehensible when you think about it. When we know that we are known by God, that reality animates within our hearts a profound love for him as well. And we enjoy communion with him. And folks, it is that reciprocal experience and expression of love that becomes the conduit through which true knowledge will flow and begin to really impact other believers. They will begin to experience our genuine love for them, regardless of the things that they might believe that are at times just things that God doesn't really care about. And this is the kind of heart attitude that we must have that to help us govern our Christian liberty. And those who, who flaunt their liberty and try to coerce others to agree with them and join them before that individual's conscience is ready for that knows nothing of this kind of love. And this was Paul's concern. You see, a, a haughty, and contemptuous knowledge, no matter how orthodox, betrays a shallow understanding of God's love for us. Worse yet, it betrays our superficial love for him. And without this, we will truly be unable to love others. And biblically, we, 
we know that that we love God. We know that we are saved. We are born again because we love him and others. Remember, first John four nineteen. John says we love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. You know, I would imagine the we eat the meat crowd communicated to the we reject the meat or we don't eat the meat. They probably talked this way. Come on, Felix, eat the meat. I mean, for crying out God out loud, those pagan gods don't exist. There, there, there's no evil spirits. You know that. God doesn't care if you eat the meat or if you don't eat the meat. You know what? Are, are you more spiritual because you reject the meat? Is that what you're thinking? I mean, come on, don't be such a legalist. You need to study the doctrine of justification. Embrace your freedom in Christ. Come on, grow up. Here, eat this. It's delicious. That's the wrong attitude. What is said is accurate biblically, but it's the wrong attitude. Let me give you a different response. Felix, brother, I want you to know that I appreciate your desire to honor Christ. I I admire your unwillingness to violate your conscience in this gray area of Christian liberty, and no one should pressure you to ever violate your conscience. And though God is clear when he says that he's the only true God and and those pagan deities don't exist and evil spirits don't get in us through the meat and so forth, I want you to know that I appreciate the fact that you're sensitive to your background, and I want to be that way too. I appreciate the fact that you don't want to in any way violate your conscience on this issue. And I also want you to know that because of our love for you, when you come to our house, Nancy and I will not be serving you meat sacrificed to idols. Moreover, if we go out to eat someplace, and that's all there is, we'll just eat the salad. But I hope you understand that that's not a conviction we we share. It's not a conviction we share here as elders at the church, nor would could we ever allow that position to be taught, either directly or indirectly, because it could be divisive. Nevertheless, please know that we are not more spiritual because we eat the meat, and you're not more spiritual because you don't eat the meat. You see, that's not the issue. We, we know that our righteousness is in Christ alone. God doesn't care whether we eat it or not. What he cares about is our love for one another. And so my passion is to pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. See, folks, that's the issue, isn't it? hope you can see the distinction there. That's Paul's point. He continues in verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. By the way, don't don't you wish you could have seen the look on the people's faces as they first heard this letter read? Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, referring to the multiple idols that they had deified, including in their culture, their own emperor. Yet, he goes on in verse 6, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things, 
from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. In other words, we know that all those other gods are phony. There's no Zeus, there's no Aphrodite, there's no Hercules, there's no Baal, there's no Pharaohs. Well, it's going down the line. There's no Buddha, there's no Allah, there's no Muhammad. We're not all gods, as a lot of people want to say today. Those things are either a figment of someone's imagination or they are demons impersonating themselves and influencing other people through human beings, like we saw with like Nero and Hitler and so forth. Instead, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things. By the way, that's a fantastic passage. I'm not going to succumb to the temptation to spend a lot of time on it. Suffice it to say here, what we are learning once again is that the Lord Jesus Christ was, was, was self-existent. He was the, the pre-existent God, and he worked with the Father in creation, and we exist through him. We know this, we can only come to the Father through the Son, in the Son. He is the mediator of the new spiritual creation and so forth. Now, obviously... Most of all of the, the, the people in the Corinthian church knew this, especially the believers. I mean, you can't be a believer and not know this. And others, ah, yeah, I kind of believe that, but man, I have a hard time living consistently with that because of my background. So some people are still under the influence of some superstitious notions about, about idols and evil spirits. And they hated that life that they had come out of. They wanted nothing to do with it. For this reason, Paul goes on to say in verse 7, However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. In other words, for some, they don't have a full grasp of all of this, and, and when they eat that meat that's sacrificed to an idol, it anchors them once again to all of that pagan idolatry, all of the immorality that they now found reprehensible. But, he says in verse 8, God will not commend us to God. I'm, I'm sorry, but food will not commend us to God. In other words, commend means to bring you closer to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do. And, of course, we know that there's no dietary restrictions, no dietary laws in the New Testament. I was thinking about this, and I'm glad, because I, I, I hate all these diets. That, you know, you just kind of, now obviously, you've got to be careful. I know, you careful what you eat. But it's not like God says, eat this, but don't eat this. You don't see that. I, I think of uh, in Acts 10, remember Peter's vision? God gives him a vision, and there's this great sheet that descends from heaven, and in it it says, We're all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. By the way, that verse is a great comfort to me. I am a carnivore and a hunter, okay? And um, I know vegetarians and animal rights groups hate that particular passage, but I want you to notice that that the sheet wasn't filled with heads of lettuce, carrots, broccoli, and sweet potatoes. No. Um, anyway, the point is, there's no more unclean foods. And you, we have to understand that. God doesn't keep score 
because and bless some people more than others because of what they eat. God doesn't care if they eat the meat unless if in doing so that person violates their conscience. Because if that happens, they sin in their own mind and it puts them on a very dangerous, slippery slope. I mean, folks, once you start violating your conscience, you can end up into all kinds of difficulties in your life. And again, remember, everything they did revolved around gods and goddesses. It's hard for us to think this way. All of their worship, even, uh, it was filled with immorality and orgies and drunken debauchery. You know, it, it, it was like spring break every day for these people. That, that's just how they lived. And, and they despised that lifestyle. And for some, their conscience was still weak. They weren't able to fully embrace their liberty in Christ, and they would feel guilty and condemned if they ate the meat. So for them, eating the meat would defile or violate their conscience. Their conscience would say, stay away from that stuff. Don't get near any of that kind of wickedness. You see, folks, the danger here is that because the Spirit of God informs our conscience through His Word, if we start violating our conscience in one area, what's to say we aren't going to do it in another area? And that's what God is concerned about. The, the truth of the Word of God comes to us and gives us true knowledge and wisdom, and it informs our conscience. So we should never get in the habit of ignoring it. And if we have freedom in Christ and another person is bound up for whatever reason, we should never try to coerce them or kind of move them in a direction that would cause them to violate their conscience. By the way, he's going to get into this a whole lot more very practically in chapter 10. Even in Romans chapter 14, verse 23 we read, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So where Paul is going here is so very important for us to all hear. He's essentially saying, look, folks, don't play the Holy Spirit in a person's life by coercing them or even modeling something for them in a way to try to push them into an area that would violate their conscience. I don't care if you've got a hundred Bible verses to back it up. Don't do that. You remember the, the Corinthians had a phrase, all things are lawful for me. We read about that, for example, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me. But Paul says, but not all things are profitable. He says it again in chapter 10, verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. You see, this is what has to govern our Christian liberty. We have to ask the question, will my behavior help or hinder a person's spiritual growth? Especially if that brother has a weak conscience. Especially if that brother or sister in Christ has kind of an immature faith. Think of a little child. Little children have, well, they basically have no conscience, right? I mean, the parents have to become the conscience for them. They're, they're poorly informed, and they'll do pretty much anything. I mean, they are rude, they are naughty, they are arrogant, they, 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 they're, they're just nasty a lot of times. We all know that. We all love them, but that's kind of how they are. And the parent has to somewhat become the conscience for the child. 
until that child is fully informed and his conscience can take over. And I was thinking about this with my grandkids here. I certainly don't want to embarrass them, but I remember when they were little, uh, when we would take them to, like, Kroger or Walmart or wherever, we, we had to stick them in the cart because if you don't, they're running all over everywhere. You parents understand that. And... So I came up with the real smart idea that there's such a thing as store dog. You better get back in that cart or store dog will get you. By the way, I'm not saying this is good parenting, so please, I, yeah, I, I understand that. Just, just bear with me. I mean, I mean, when you're a grandpa, you're just doing the best you can, you know. You just want to keep them reined in. And so I remember the first time, time that, that happened, this guy had a, had a dog, and, and the child was looking. I forget which one it was, and, and they were trying to get out. And I said, no, that's store dog. You've got to be careful with store dog because they'll get you. And, of course, their eyes are big as saucers, and they're always hunting store dog. By the way, I also had restaurant dog. So um. Now... For a while, my precious children had a conscience that held them to a ridiculous standard that was given to them by a well-meaning but perhaps misguided grandpa. But eventually, as they matured, they realized that store dog didn't exist, right? There's no such thing as store dog. There's no such thing as restaurant dog. No such thing as Cracker Barrel dog, all right? Well, folks, many immature believers are the same way. Now, I'm sure the analogy breaks down in many areas, but I think you get the point. People can believe things that may not be true in those gray areas of Christian liberty. And it takes time for people to grow up and kind of get a hold of these things so that they can, shall we say, enjoy walking around the store and the restaurant or whatever without, you know, any problem. But folks, that is the Holy Spirit's work. We have to be patient with that, with people. His ways are not our ways. I know believers who wouldn't be caught dead with a deck of playing cards. I know believers that would never go to a movie theater. They would never, ever go to a secular music concert. They won't watch television. Some won't even have them in their home. There are believers that would never touch an alcoholic beverage. They would never use tobacco. I know believers that can't worship with certain instruments in a church. Some won't even go to a church unless there's no instruments. I know believers that would never play pool or billiards. They would never go to a bowling alley. They would never go to a horse race because there's gambling that occurs there. I know there are believers that won't carve pumpkins or let their kids dress up at trick-or-treat on Halloween because for them that's tantamount to somehow Satan worship. There are believers that won't celebrate Christmas because it's rooted in paganism. They would never have a Christmas tree. I know... There are believers that would never attend a church that so-called divides families, that would have like uh, Sunday school or student ministries. They would never let their kids go to, uh, to any kind of a camp unless it's a family camp. There are men and women that, that will go to some churches where the men sit on one side and women sit on the other. There are believers, for example, women that would never, ever wear slacks. 
they would never wear jewelry. I know believers that would never wear jeans or shirts without collars. I know believers, uh, especially, well, some in the United States, but, but especially in other parts of the world that are pacifists, they would never wear buttons because that's symbolic of military. I know believers that believe that women should never have short hair, that they should have head coverings, that they should never work outside the home, and all of this. So it can be very frustrating because not every church has the same set of rules. I, I remember when I, one time in, in Siberia, I, I was in a church service. I was setting up kind of front in the front, and I set my, my Bible down on the floor. And little within just a, a few seconds, one of the believers was, who was a pastor friend of mine, he was tapping me and and actually, he had told the, the translator, and the translator said, pick your Bible up. Don't set your Bible on the floor, because that's dishonoring to God. I didn't know that rule, you see. I remember when I used to go to church with my grandparents in Kentucky, all the men would go outside between Sunday school and church and smoke cigarette. Well, boy, you don't do that up north where we ended up living. So you see, you've got all of these rules. Now, Christians are free not to do these things, and they're also free to do these things. But often what happens is different sides begin to exalt their preferences and their positions, and suddenly the peripheral issues become the major issues, and it becomes divisive. And the two sides can either lead towards legalism or license. And you'll see this in individuals, you'll see this in churches, and it varies by family, it varies by church, it varies by culture. Think about it. One side is the legalism side. In legalism, there's very little, if any, gray. Everything is black and white. And the the legalist will have strict and elaborate rules, lists of do's and don'ts, and and, and for the legalist, spiritual people obey the rules and unspiritual people don't. And so the legalist becomes overly scrupulous in virtually every area of life. And very often they will, they will secretly and sometimes more publicly flaunt their perceived spirituality for others to see. They tend to torture every text to somehow support their rule. And unfortunately, for, for the legalist, spirituality is measured by one's willingness to obey the rules and regulations. Their lives are no longer ordered by the Spirit who brings freedom, but rather by their own self-imposed rules. And folks, one of the real issues here is that legalism only provides the illusion of spirituality. But there's no power in an illusion. So very often the fruit of the Spirit is not there. The legalist is always on duty, and he, he, he is limited in his ability to effectively minister to others. He, he's typically operating in the flesh and not the spirit. So in order to compensate for the emptiness and, and the guilt-inducing illusion of spirituality that comes from just keeping all the rules, what do you do? You've got to create more rules, and so there's no end to the rules. And if you've been around those dear people, my goodness, it's, it's, it's just difficult. And unfortunately, as long as you do the list, you're spiritual. It doesn't matter if you're arrogant or lazy or you treat your wife and kids like dirt. As long as you got a high score on the list, then you're good to go. 
And so legalism replaces the word of God and it misinforms the conscience and it it diminishes the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. By the way, holding to some of the certain things doesn't always make you a legalist. I want to make that point clear. It doesn't always mean you have a weak conscience. The legalist is one who believes he is more spiritual, more acceptable to God because of what he does or what he doesn't do. Like, for example, I personally refrain from using alcohol, not because I believe God demands it, nor do I believe that that it makes me more spiritual than those who use it. I abstain because I fear personally for my own family that my kids will do in excess what I do in moderation. Plus, you have to realize I have spent my life dealing with lives that have been utterly destroyed by alcohol. And so, you know, I, I, I tend to push back on that for myself personally. Moreover, I know that there's, there's several of you that are recovering alcoholics. And for you to see me drinking might cause you to stumble. It, you, you might say, you know, well, if pastor does that, I, I guess it's okay for me. And it might send you back in, in that other direction. So that's just a personal conviction. It's a preference. I'm, I'm free to abstain just like you're free to use it. I'm not more spiritual because I don't than those of you that do. But that's not legalism. The other side of legalism is license. You might say this is the opposite of legalism. Everything is gray. Everything is acceptable as long as it doesn't violate your conscience. And for the libertine, like the legalist, they, they, they tend to directly or indirectly flaunt their Christian liberty and, and often cross the line into areas that are, that are clearly forbidden in Scripture. The libertine has no concern whether or not a behavior will help or hinder the growth of another believer or cause that person to stumble. The libertine tends to be all about self-gratification, not edification. They tend to be all about self rather than others. In fact, for them, for example, on the extreme end of this, drinking alcohol is really a badge of honor. I see this in a lot of reform circles today. You're not really mature. You really don't understand the gospel unless you're willing to to drink and do it in public. Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite. So the libertine is is prone to judging, belittling those who, who disagree with them and even coercing others to somehow embrace their convictions. And some will then even lapse into antinomianism because after all, since all my sins are forgiven, I can just do whatever I want, right? And both the legalist and the libertine can, can fall into a pit. And both sides can become what I call speck spotters. <laughs> a speck spotter is someone that can spot the speck in their brother's eye at a thousand yards. They can't see the log in their own. I can't believe you won't watch Hollywood movies. Come on. Well, I can't believe you are, you are so libertine that you will. You know, and here we go with all of this silly stuff. By the way, I've never met a legalist or a libertine that thought he was one. Everybody's got their Bible verses. But what really governs this is is our love for one another. Now, back to the text. This eating meat sacrificed to idols. Well, clearly, this is a gray area of Christian liberty. God doesn't address this as right or wrong. So how do you deal with this? Well, we see... We've seen the problem defined. Let's look 
finally at the principle applied, verse 9. He says, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block means something that would call a person or cause a person to fall into sin. Be careful with that. You want to ask yourself the question, will what I'm doing cause another believer to be tempted to defile? Or literally, it means to go against their conscience, even if it is poorly informed. Bottom line, beloved, don't do anything that would cause a brother to compromise his convictions. Because again, this is the way the Spirit of God leads a person to a place of maturity. Verse 10, for if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? In other words, your behavior may cause this person to think, well, you know, if, if, if Pastor Dave can do it, I, I guess it's okay. And so I'll just kind of use this as an excuse to kind of get back into all of this. And folks, sometimes all it takes is a little nudge for a person to begin to slide down a slippery slope that will take them right back into an area of, of, of wickedness in their life. In verse 11, he goes on, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. In other words, you're the one that's causing him to sin. You caused him to defile his conscience and perhaps fall back into sin. And he says, this, this brother for whose sake Christ died. Verse 12, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. And what, what Paul is saying here is, how can you possibly do such a thing? How can you do this to someone who is so, so precious to Christ? Yes, they may have a weak conscience, and, and he may be spiritually immature. He may not fully understand his liberty in Christ. But, but Christ purchased his redemption with his very blood. And when you cause one who is united to Christ to sin, you're sinning against Christ. That's his point. Therefore, verse 13, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So, again, we've got to learn to limit our liberty for the sake of our brother. We always want to ask, will my actions and my habits help or hinder my brother's spiritual growth? Because I never want an immature believer to violate his conscience and do something that his conscience does not permit just because I've encouraged him to do so. Now, I know some of you will ask, well, where do you draw the line on this? Because after all, there's always going to be somebody that's offended with something. Well, yes, but being offended is different than causing someone to stumble, to fall back into some lifestyle of sin. Folks, there's a difference between an immature brother with weak faith and weak conscience that is legitimately struggling with Christian liberty. There's a difference between that person and a factious fault finder. There's a big difference. I know people that will not set foot in this church because I don't preach out of the King James Bible. So what are we supposed to do in order to accommodate that person? Do we take we all use King James Bibles? I've had people attack us. We don't have it in here now because we've had a Christmas tree. 
You cannot believe the vicious emails I've received. I haven't received them lately, but on, online, when you, uh, when you look at the sermon, you see a Christmas wreath back here. I've received vicious emails from people who say that we are heretics because we celebrate Christmas, that is a pagan holiday, and on and on it goes. I remember one Christmas Eve service years ago. All the kids come on Christmas Eve, you know, and we have their jammies on, and, and we're, we're singing carols and all, and the pianist had a little Santa Claus hat on. Well, this one guy comes up to me, and I thought he was having a gallbladder attack. I wasn't sure what was going on, but he was absolutely livid because she was wearing a Santa Claus hat. And you, you see where I'm going with this? I mean, there, there's such a thing as just a factious fault finder. And that's very different than someone that's, that's, that's struggling to, with, with issues that might cause them to fall back into sin. With factious fault finders, Titus 3.10, you reject a factious man after you've warned him two or three times. You have nothing more to do with them. Calvin calls them, quote, strong giants who may be desirous tyrannically to subject our liberty to their humor. Interesting way of putting it. He went on to say they must be, quote, safely let alone because we need not fear giving offense to those who are not drawn into sin through infirmity, but eagerly catch at something to find fault with. So that's the difference. Folks, let me challenge you in closing. As Paul says in, in Romans fourteen nineteen, let, let, let's pursue the things that make for peace in the building up of one another, right? And this is never accomplished by legalism or by license. And in the exercise of your Christian freedom, you always want to ask, will my behavior help or hinder a person's spiritual growth? I don't care how weak, immature they might be. Will they sense my genuine love for them, although I might have a position that is different from theirs. And what a blessing it is to fellowship with other believers who have that kind of spiritual maturity. And I'm so thankful that that is by far the pervasive attitude here at Calvary Bible Church. I'm so thankful for that. I praise God for all of you. Let's bow our heads together. Father, thank you for the truths that we have examined here today. And I pray that that you will speak to each of us in those areas, perhaps where we struggle, and certainly we all do. And we just thank you that you are gracious, you are long-suffering. We thank you that you've even given your word to us this morning so that we can examine our lives under the light of it. And I pray that each of us will take these things to heart, live them out, so that others will see, even unbelievers, be able to see our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we long for you to bless us, and we thank you that you continue to do that in so many ways. And finally, Father, if there be one here today that does not know you as Savior, I pray that you will convict them. I pray that you will help them to see the heinousness of their sin and the way it separates them from a holy God and that you will cause them through the power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, to come running to Christ for forgiveness and for a righteousness that is not their own, that today will be the day of their salvation. We commit all of this to you and we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. 
You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.